big topics, big ideas, and practical policy solutions. This is Leaders on the Frontier with your host, David Lease. The topic today is all about COVID-19 and the associated actions and attacks on freedoms and rights in Canada. And what about protecting freedom in the freedoms in the courts? So we're going to be talking with uh, two of our guests, uh, quite an animated discussion about the debates that's going on in defense of freedoms and rights in our country. I do want to look then more at current legal actions to date. And I know it's a complex subject and we're not going to be able to go through. Um, we're just kind of scratching the surface here in many respects. But I want to talk specifically from your point of view of brief examples of how Canadians rights and freedoms were violated. I'll go through some of the charter rights and freedoms and briefly explain how they were violated. Mm -hmm. So charter section 2A protects freedom of conscience and religion, uh, which is the very first freedom that's enumerated in the charter. So in Alberta, we had pastors thrown in prison. Uh, in British Columbia, we had houses of worship closed entirely while bars and gyms, restaurants uh, stayed open. Uh, in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, throughout the country, uh, we've had, for example, uh, drive-in church services that have been disrupted, prohibited, banned. So there's been an aggressive attack against the freedom of religion and freedom of conscience uh, extends to uh, a right of every person to decide what gets injected into their body or not. That's obviously been violated by the government mandatory vaccination policies. It's kind of a common sense view here. You could go to Walmart, you could go to the liquor store, but you couldn't go to your house of worship. Is that where the where it kind of breaks down and says, wait a sec, why is that not a violation of your right to, to frankly worship? Well, this was the case in, in British Columbia for I believe about five months where you could have six strangers meet up at a restaurant and six people sit at a table together, but you couldn't have uh, six people or any number of people. Uh, the Justice Center went to court. We had pastors that were actually willing to comply in British Columbia. We had pastors that were willing to comply with the hand sanitizer, social distancing, mm -hmm. mask wearing, capacity limits. They said, we'll comply with all that stuff, but let us stay open. And the government, in what I think is an simply anti religious bigotry on, on the part of Bonnie Henry and nothing else, uh, the government shut down churches entirely. So I want to just um, shift a little bit to a little bit of a related topic, and that would be the whole area of injury. Is that coming up in, in the Canadian scene? I know there's cases in the United States where people are proving injury. Uh, what's going on in the Canadian scene in that regard? Uh, at this point, um, there has not been any uh, government recognition that um, these vaccines are causing harm. But what's happened here with these is because they were rushed to market, uh, you know, Trump's Operation Warp Speed, um, these, the, 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 uh, uh, the government of Canada and the United States and other countries provided a grand indemnity to these uh, pharmaceutical companies. Okay, so, so what, what does that mean? You mean the sense that they don't have to be held liable correct. for the product? Correct. Is that right? Yes, correct. So as it stands right now, these pharmaceutical companies cannot be sued. And, the, and that's very unusual. I've, I've never, frankly, heard of that before. Have you? Um, it, 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 is, it is unprecedented in modern times. It's also 
totally unprecedented for uh, people to be uh, forced to take an experimental drug in order to uh, to exercise basic civil liberties. Uh, wow. Of course, you know, in Alberta, we know, uh, for example, that people couldn't even get into arenas to see their, you know, so see the children play play hockey. We had uh, you know vaccine uh, identification cards that people had to provide proof of vaccination just to enter restaurants and the like. Let alone so that, see that's their, unprecedented uh, too. Or late, I was going to say, let alone, um, sadly, be in situations where they could not see. Um, a dying loved one because right. they could not enter where they right. were. Right. Yes. And uh, there are signs. I, I think this is ultimately, this is going to, this is going to break um, my firm. And I know others were in consultation with the firm in Montreal that's developing cases, vaccine mandate uh, class actions. These are coming. Okay. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, some of your viewers maybe may have heard about what happened in Thailand where, member of the royal family actually was recently harmed and uh, Thailand is now the first country in the world that apparently is going to pierce this veil and open it up so that uh, these pharmaceutical companies can be can be sued I think there I, I think my personal opinion and this is supported by what's in the books I mentioned is that uh, big pharma has calculated this that they they know that ultimately they're going to be left holding the bag they've just they've just calculated the net cost so on that front we'll have to wait and see i also did want to turn to the whole area of vaccine mandates and we know that um, there are persons who said although i have to take a vac the quote vaccine to either travel um and and go see a um, a dying relative i also have to take a vaccine to work and so on mm. that front there are thousands of canadians and we probably know of some friends uh, closely or, or, or not so closely who actually lost their job, sadly, because of those vaccine mandates. What about the status on that? Are there any challenges to defend those, um, those issues? I'll comment briefly on the charter angle to it. And perhaps Leighton has examples of specific cases. But the uh, Charter Section 7 uh, spells out the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Security of the person includes a right to bodily autonomy, which means that every individual has a right to, to decide on medical treatments, including vaccines, what will or will not be injected into my body. Um, kind of the old same, the old cliche, my body, my choice, which it seems in 2021, nobody was chanting that anymore. Uh, seems like, like people didn't care. But um, the vaccine... Passports, vaccine mandates were very blatant, were, and in some cases still are to the extent that they're in force, blatant violations of the uh, charter right to life, liberty, and security of the person, because government should not be putting any pressure on people to take uh, any kind of a medical treatment. It's my understanding that in British Columbia, the are, there are nurses and doctors who would love to go back to work tomorrow. They are still kept unemployed and without EI because of a personal choice to not get oh. injected with this COVID vaccine. And so British Columbia's healthcare system, I'm told, is not doing very well. And they're trying to recruit people from other provinces, other countries to come to BC, but they're not yet hiring back doctors and nurses that would like to go back tomorrow. So very, very serious uh, violations of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as the Nuremberg Code, which was a code of ethics that arose uh, from the trial of Nazi 
doctors in Nuremberg in 1945. Okay, so let's just clarify this. So the Nuremberg laws relate to those laws that said you can't just put something into somebody's body without their permission. They they have a kind of a freedom of conscience, if you will, to make that ultimate choice. And we violated that, didn't we? Yeah, the Nuremberg Code, uh, the first principle is consent that is fully informed and fully voluntary. Mm -hmm. And of course, informed and voluntary are, are two sides of the same coin, because if you're not properly informed, then it's not truly a voluntary decision. But there can be no force, no fraud, no duress, no pressure, nothing. And wow. these are uh, moral principles that are embedded in the uh, the court judgments of the Nuremberg co courts uh, that were released after the Second World War. And they've been completely disregarded in Canada in the last two years. So I do want to look at a bit of a bigger picture, and that relates to the state of law in our country. Are there observations we can make regarding the rule of law? We know that these have been, in many respects, the cornerstone to our Western civilization, the whole notion that our rights and freedoms don't come from the state. They're God-given or natural rights, if you will, and that the king, the queen, whoever that is, is not above the law. And uh, it goes back to, what was it, June 15, 1215, with uh, King John, a terrible ruler, who finally had to sign what was called the Magna Carta at, at Runnymede in England, who said that the, um, the rule of law is in place, among many other things. So where are we going in this country when we don't, like, is, is the rule of law in jeopardy here, in your point of view? Um Teresa Tam, and this is the connection between, you know, what I was saying earlier, the connection between COVID and where we're going. Teresa Tam is the chief medical officer for Canada. And uh, she's the, really the author of, you know, or at least the instrument of uh, the author of a lot of this pain and suffering that's been inflicted on Canadians over COVID-19. Recently, um, she published a 105-page manifesto ostensibly on climate change. Remember, this is a, a medical doctor called Mobilizing Public Health Action on Climate Change in Canada. And here she talks about uh, how climate change poses catastrophic risks for present and future generations and the livability of the planet. And then she goes on to say that the, the government must take assertive and effective action across jur jurisdictions and sectors in order to deal with uh, things influenced by structural systems of oppression. Remember, this is a medical doctor. Structural systems of oppression, such as colonization, racism, ableism, and heteronormity. We need environmental health justice research and action for LGBTQ plus people and queering environmental justice, unequal environmental health burden on the LGBTQ plus community. So what I'm saying here is where we're going is we're living in a country that has a federal government which regards itself as a national government that has no regard for federalism, has no regard for the separation of powers. We saw this recently where the federal government, Justin Trudeau, basically issued an ultimatum to the premiers of this of this uh, of the provinces of this country, saying uh, basically saying, here's the money we're going to give for health care. This is money that has been extracted from the provinces, especially Alberta. Uh, in exchange for, he said, the quid pro quo is he wants the health information, personal health information of every Canadian from every province. And uh, so where we're going is we are presently governed by 
a federal government that regards itself as a national government has no regard for the rule of law, no regard for the Constitution, no regard for the principles of federalism that have governed our country for a very, very long time. And uh, that's the rea- that's the state of affairs wow. in this country. And uh, shocking like Alberta. Yeah, and provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, out of necessity, out of necessity, mind you, uh, and, and I would include Quebec in that. Quebec is, I guess, the, the leader in this regard of necessity in order to insulate themselves from uh, the oppression of, of an expanding national state, uh, have, have fashioned basically, in, in, in short, independent movements. And, and have said uh, and are saying to the federal government, look, you're encroaching on us in, in, in all these areas. You have no regard for the, fed, the rule of law or the Constitution. And so, um, you know, we're it's dividing the country. And I think that's where we're going. That's the only mm-hmm. protection that individual provinces uh, can have against this against this uh, this federal government. Wow. So so are you saying, Leighton, that I mean, it was quite powerful when you were reading from Dr. Teresa Tam's document. Mm. It sounds like there's a real are, are you suggesting that the law is changing in the sense that the, the state itself, the federal government, is imposing a very collectivist approach to the law mm-hmm. in the country. It doesn't respect individual rights and freedoms like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I think that's exactly true. Um, and, uh, you, you know, when you talk about the Charter, um, you know, you can just see the, the, the disregard, for example, for uh, the individual rights and freedoms in the way that Section 1 of the Charter, which is a uh, you know, it, it, which is supposed to be a very, very narrow exception. Brian Peckford talks brilliantly about this. It's supposed to be a, mer- a very narrow, narrow exception within which government can justify mm-hmm. infringement of individual rights and freedoms. Section one has been expanded so to such a degree that it almost obviates, vitiates, uh, wipes out uh, the individual rights and freedoms. And in fact, uh, our former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, who serves on a in China now and is well paid to do so. Um, she wrote an op-ed not long after the Freedom Convoy was put down in Ottawa saying that essentially it's Section 1 is now the only effective charter right, which is another way of saying that uh, you know the state can do whatever it wants. Essentially. Wow, that, that's uh, frankly gobsmacking. Um, and it is ironic that the former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin is serving in a court of China, no less. And I believe it, it's Hong Kong, as I recall. Yeah, it's bizarre. that's right, which is now wow. part of China. It's been essentially... Yeah, so we're using a, a judge that headed a Canadian court to somehow build up the perceived credibility of a Chinese court, no less. A regime mm-hmm. that, that exercises a real genocide on, on people. Right. It's, it's and really you know, our current chief judge also had some very pointed comments that he made well, publicly about... Uh, uh, I, I did want to talk briefly about the role of judges. And I did want to cite a little bit about um, the uh, uh, Canada's top judges' comments on the Truckers' Freedom Convoy. And um, as I recall, a group of 13 lawyers wrote a letter of complaint to the Canadian Judicial Council about comments by the Supreme Court of Canada Chief Justice Richard Wagner. And uh, the complaint uh, quotes um, the Chief Justice, and it said, Um, quote, the beginning of anarchy, to take other citizens hostage, to take the law into their own hands, not to respect the mechanism, I find that very worrying. So that's the essence of the comment. But the point is this, 
those kinds of signals, what do they tell you about the approach that these judges are looking at um, undertaking when it comes to their, their um, uh, you know, their, their assessment of the Freedom Convoy's example? Do they have any, have any possibility of having a fair trial in court when they have a, a chief justice making remarks like that? Well, I think your question kind of answers it. I mean, no, when the uh, <clears throat> there, there is litigation on the go currently. In fact, the the Justice Center in February of 2022. So right after the crushing of the peaceful protest with tear gas and uh, uh, truncheons beating people with sticks, uh, police on horses, old lady trampled and injured. After all of this happened, we filed a court action seeking a declaration that the prime minister acted illegally when uh, declaring a national emergency. Now, this is in the federal court trial division. It is likely to get appealed to the federal court of appeal by whichever side loses. Uh, and then from there, it might possibly go up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so now we've got one judge on the Supreme Court of Canada who's publicly uh, made derogatory comments about the peaceful protest in Ottawa that took place in February of 2022, which is profoundly disconcerting because there will be cases or there may be cases. We don't know yet what mm -hmm. is going to, what the Supreme Court's going to hear or not, right? And they, 90% of the requests made to the Supreme Court are declined uh, by the Supreme Court. So they don't hear every case, but we, we now have a situation where uh, anything related to the freedom convoy uh, if it gets into the Supreme Court, you've got a judge there who has publicly made it known yeah. what where he stands. Yeah, and frankly, what his bias is. What his bias yeah. is, yeah. yeah. So I know this today wasn't specifically about the state of the media and information, but I can't help but bring it up because it kind of sets the broader context for legal challenge because – you know, like all of us, we're human beings, so are judges, so are politicians and everybody. And so there's a kind of a, a discussion in the larger context that sets the tone for how we pursue these matters. And I would say that during this whole issue and challenge of COVID-19, it was frankly quite evident that you rarely ever heard a vigorous balanced debate from different perspectives around the efficacy of lockdowns let alone the vaccines, all kinds of issues. You heard little bits of it in the margins. This last few months have been, quite frankly, um, spellbinding as we've examined the so-called Twitter files. As Elon Musk acquired that so-called firm, we've learned really an awful lot. And I want to quote from the great Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, who said, quote, from the beginning of the COVID panic, it felt that something was very wrong. Never had a pandemic, much less a seasonal uh, pathogenic wave, been treated as a quasi-military emergency requiring the upending of all freedoms and rights. What it, made, what it made it more bizarre was how alone those of us who objected felt until very recently when Elon Musk finally bought the platform Twitter, fired all the embedded federal agents and started to release the files. The proof is all there. These platforms colluded with the federal government's administrative arm, that's in the United States, of course, to craft a particular COVID narrative. And it goes on and on. But the point is that 
we have the receipts, we have the proof that show that a number of federal agencies in the United States were censoring, directing the messages that were acceptable, not only for COVID-19, incidentally, but for many other narratives. So in this context, why does that matter to the Canadian context? Because a lot of Canadians get their news not from legacy media, but from the social media. And on top of that, we know in the legacy media in Canada, and a lot of Canadians would be shocked to know this, some 2,000 media receive a lot of funding from the federal government. So in that context, does that shape up what you're experiencing on the legal side as so many Canadians, frankly, don't even know this background? Well, the funding of, of media is a problem in terms of bad public policy. It does not, to my knowledge, it does not directly violate the individual charter freedom of expression. So in other words, the government funding for media creates a very distorted information landscape where uh, you've got not only the CBC, but the, you know, the CTV and Global and National Post, Global Mail, every newspaper, every television station, every radio station, they're all uh, beating the drum for the government's narrative on COVID and other issues. And so there's a lack of independence. So it's very bad for democracy. Does this take away from my individual right to express my own opinions? I don't think it does. And so it's not something in my view that could be, it would be hard to challenge successfully in court, uh, but certainly uh, nothing stops Canadian voters from telling their elected representatives that there should be no government funding for media. Why? Because we cherish independent media and media funded by government is not independent. Exactly. You compromise it. Well said. Mm -hmm. What about you, Leighton? Well, I agree with John. Uh, one thing that's on the horizon, actually, is um, uh, I recently spoke with uh, Dr. Robert Malone, who famously is one of the people like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and others who were censored on Twitter because uh, they were offering uh, a different side of, of the truth. Um, I'm biased in, in their favor in terms of the actual truth of COVID-19. But in any event, they, they were censored and suppressed uh, and actually called names. And Dr. Malone has actually filed a, um, a $50 million defamation lawsuit. Pardon me, you said $50 million? $50 million, $50 million lawsuit against the oh. Washington Post, uh, who I heard one commentator, one podcaster describe as a former newspaper uh against the washington <laughs> post on friday uh accusing the was the washington post of dangerous lies the washington post had had accused him during COVID of spreading dangerous lies and mm -hmm. leading his followers on a journey to illness suffering and possible death that sort of sounds like uh the winter of death that uh right. president biden promised but so uh i think that um on the horizon there is uh, and I'm watching that case very, very closely because it could open the door uh, to a, a, a type of legal challenge against the, you know, the the abuse of this media power uh, by by large media conglomerates like the Washington Post or even, you know, the CBC or CTV or or, or Global. Of course, um, the problem that that presents is that uh, someone like Dr. Malone is someone who is well supported and has the resources to launch a suit like that. Um, you know, most, you know, doctors and practitioners and people like that don't have the resources to take on a huge media conglomerate that has enormous power. But this, this marriage 
of um, of, of govern big government, big media, uh, social media, and big corporate. Uh, it should be something that is a tremendous concern to Canadians because it does not work to our to our benefit. If you go back and you read the original writings of people like Benito Mussolini on fascism, essentially this fits the definition. Yeah, when in fact we should be having open discussion all in the service of uh, serving Canadians and their health and in our communities. Right. So as we, write, as we wrap things up, uh, any last words in terms of actions that Canadians can take as we look at this kind of landscape, uh, other than to be aware? Any advice there? I've often said that uh, quitters never win, winners never quit. And so the, the two virtues that we need the most in these dangerous times are courage and perseverance. We need courage to speak truth to power and continue speaking truth to power. It's fundamental, it's crucial, it's important. Courage to speak truth to power and then perseverance to keep on going and do it not just for a few days or a few months, uh, but do it for years, do it for decades to win back all the rights and freedoms that we lost three years ago. Well said. Leighton? You, you know I'm a fan of quotations. There's a famous one from Lord Wilberforce. And most people won't know that name, but without him, we, you know, we wouldn't have had the abolitionist movement that freed slaves in, in, this, in the Western world. Uh, and he famously said that you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. And I would combine that with another piece of advice, which comes from Preston Manning, who wrote uh, a wonderful book. He's written many wonderful books, but a great book called Do Something, uh, which, which is a list of 365 things you can do, one for each day of the year, to get involved. And I think that a lot of what we're talking about today, uh, this, this government overreach, uh, which reaches into every aspect of our lives, has happened because we're not as connected as we could be and we ought to be with our local communities. So if something is happening in your home community, get out there, say something, do something, get involved. Because when, when we do not, the universe abhors a vacuum. Somebody else moves in and, you might, and you, you might not like what they're going to try and make you do. Whether it's the smart city, the 15-minute city, or uh, drag queens coming into your local library to put on a show for youth Get out there, get involved, uh, because that that's where we're going to change this thing is at the grassroots level. John Carpe and Leighton Gray, thank you so much for joining us today on this discussion about fighting for rights and freedoms in the courts in Canada. We're very grateful for your courage and we're very grateful for your time. So, so, so thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.